Bring it on, Yugi! Alright, it's time to duel! That's a nice attack, but I'm not down yet! You're listening to the Shadow Realm Podcast, brought to you by Bamani Lounge. Hello everyone, welcome to the Shadow Realm Podcast, brought to you by your hosts, Henry Furchow, and here we have Darnell Jordan. Darnell, how are you doing today? Doing pretty well. Not too bad. Feeling kind of sad, though. I just blew the dust off my deck box right before we started this, and I was just like, man, I miss IRL Yu-Gi-Oh! Man, I just miss going to locals, shaking my opponent's hand, and then getting obliterated and going X2 drop and getting halal after the second round. <laughs> but... uh <laughs> Honestly, I, I do miss the the logistics almost of going to locals. Like I miss getting up early and then having to plan my day. You know, my Saturday, I would get up, I would do my chores. Tournament would start at three, but it would take me like two hours to get to Flushing to get to Queens. So I would have to take three buses because I like I can't drive there. It's kind of a sketchy place. So I would have to do so much and go so out of my way just to play Yu-Gi-Oh for a day. And I honestly, genuinely missing, genuinely miss doing that. I miss going out of my house and having a place to be and to playing Yu-Gi-Oh the entire day. I miss opening my entry packs. I miss making pointless conversation with the people that I only talk to at locals once a week. And I, I miss the thrill of playing in a tournament where I can actually interact with real people. You know what I mean? No, 100%. I know exactly what you mean. And it, it does feel like there's a, a bit of a hole in my life without it. So, yeah, I mean, I just hope we get past this weird time that we're in right now so I can actually go back to locals and actually play in real life and enjoy that whole environment. The good parts about it. Right, right. So, for those of you at home who don't know Darnell, Darnell, you are the video audio producer for Bamani Lounge, and this is your first episode. So uh, welcome, welcome aboard, and uh, Darnell is going to be doing some co-hosting in, in the future. So Darnell, tell us a little bit about you as a player and who you are and what you do and why you're here. So I'm actually, uh, I guess my title is the creative director for Bamani Lounge. So like I handle a lot of the stuff that comes out of this brand and community and whatnot. Um, yeah, as a player, I've been playing this game like it, it's my history is kind of weird. So I was playing this game like way back in the day, like when it first came out and everything. Like I was playing before there was even a ban list. And then as soon as the ban list came out, I stopped playing and I didn't come back to the game until right around links were introduced. So there's like an enormous gap that I'm kind of missing. But I've been playing for like the last year and a half. Or so keeping up like and just like learning everything as I go. Just got my first invite. When was that? Like a yeah like a few months ago yeah which kind of sucks because i was looking forward to actually competing in the main event at nats but uh you know it is what it is the world's in a really weird place right now but yeah it's still playing the game still trying to get some tops and accolades like everyone else for for those who don't know darnell likes to play the kind of deck that i absolutely despise I personally love combo decks, and I hate trap cards. Like, I hate any deck that uses trap cards. And this man just loves them. <laughs> God forbid he doesn't draw a purple card. So, Darnell, t tell us what deck you got your invite with. <laughs> I mean, I know you hate this. I know some people will feel me on this, but I got my invite with Altergeist, which a few months ago was one of the best decks in the format. Oh, don't say it, bro. Altergeist sucks, bro. I mean, have I lost to it? Yes, but I'll never admit this deck is good. Like, I'll never admit it. I think the reason why the deck is good is because of the non-engine cards. Like, like uh, not Desires, Extravagance, uh, Judgment. Like, all the non-searchable cards are the reason why it's good. Because, but the thing is, you just get to play so many of them because the deck, like, you don't have to special summon, so you can play Duality. But, like, if you do want a special summon, you could play, like, one for one, like, to summon Melusik, and then that gets you, like, plus three. Like, it's insane, and resolving multi-faker is so good. Listen, I'm not oblivious to the inner mechanics of how Altergeist works and everything. I can tell you right now off the bat, Altergeist is good for one reason. Judgment at three. That's why Altergeist is good. Judgment at three. You have it here, folks. Judgment at three is the reason why Altergeist is good. Well, you know what? 
I'm glad because we have this new Eldritch deck, which we'll get to more when we talk about the meta section of our show. But in a way, it's sort of completely replaced Altergeist. Yeah. I disagree, but we'll get into that. I also want to say that I'm not a fan of combo. So, yeah, every single deck that you play, I'm just like, why do I have to sit through this 20-minute turn just to blow you out with an evenly matched? All right, so... When we break down the show, it's going to be pretty much three topics that me and Darnell will talk about. The first section will be online tournaments. Are What's the credibility behind them? Do they really count towards your ledger of tournament success, uh, your, your, cre- your credentials in the game? And then we're going to segue into the meta, just the meta in general. And then we'll close with a new segment on the show, Road of the King. Uh, Patrick Hoban, my good friend, uh, his book, Road of the King. And we're going to be breaking down the book section by section. We're going to do one section per every single episode. We're going to try. So today I have a section of the book called Who's the Beatdown? And it's a concept that has stayed in my brain ever since I read the book and it's brought me a lot of success. So yeah, without further ado, let's get into the first topic. Darnell, do you think that online tournaments carry the same weight? So not whether or not they're useful or not, because of course, you know, they're useful, but do they carry the same weight when it comes to recording them as tournament victories or success? as real-life tournaments? See, I'm very on the fence about that. I want to say both yes and no. And I say yes because in a lot of these online tournaments, especially like the ones that have like a lot of notoriety, you have a lot of players that have a high skill set that emerge at these tournaments and play in numbers. Like you, you tend to have like players like that show up to these online events a lot more. So you're playing against... Uh, probably some of the best players in the world in the game, whatever. So in that regard, from a skill standpoint, depending on the the brand or organization that's throwing the tournament, like yeah, it's it could be just as credible as like going to a YCS or or even like a regional. The problem is is that I think that um, I also wouldn't say that it holds the same credibility because yes, you're playing potentially a higher uh, caliber of a player, but at the same time, like you're most likely playing less players. So you could, in some regards, say that you have an easier time getting across in online tournaments, whereas you go to a YCS, like you're in a room of a thousand players. Like it's much harder than a tournament of like 200-something players. So I'm on the fence about it. I don't think they should be discredited, but at the same time, I'm not sure if it should hold the same weight and value as attending a YCS or an actual substantial regional with like five, 700 players. Like, how do you how do you feel about it? So this is my take. First of all, I want to give a shout out to MCall40 because he had a very interesting uh, video on this subject. And I don't want to, you know, use the same arguments that he used. And I want to come up with my own argument. But he made some very good points about why they do count. Uh, and, you know, he's a proponent. Like, we, right now, we only have online tournaments. So it's the only thing that we can look at. He was someone who's like, all right, there are people out there that are saying, oh, this deck wouldn't be good on, in real life because there are people that, say, that are saying Elvlick wouldn't be good if it were a real-life deck or if it was a real-life tournament, which I disagree with. I think the deck is still good. But there are people that are saying, yeah, I, I, there's a, a bunch of sub-points that these people make, but the whole argument is like the the tournament would be different if it were online or if it were, if, if it were being held in a real location. Uh, dueling book follows an algorithm that, you know, dictates what cards you draw and it's not truly randomized, which I would say that if it's the same for both players, that argument kind of cancels out. Uh, but here is also what I think. I think that while I disagree that online tournaments are weightless, meaning that they don't count for anything, I think they do count. I think that having Cody Angeloff, who was our reigning national champion in the IRL form of Yu-Gi-Oh, he recently won a was it a pro play games tournament, and with his rock deck, and 
I would like to say that that would probably happen, but here's the thing. Online tournaments, they they carry the same weight as the number of people that they hold. So the recently the recently held LCS had 240 people. And most regionals that is bigger than some regionals. Most regionals that I am accustomed to have at least like 600. Like especially Philadelphia usually has 700. Connecticut I think had in the 4 to 500 range. Uh, we talk about Catskills a little bit smaller because they have a smaller venue. So maybe you can compare it to Catskills. The Connecticut one we went to was like 500 players, right? 500. Okay. And then uh, Brooklyn is 500. Uh, so, you know, when we talk about the local uh, regional uh, tournament scene, as far as attendance, it's pretty much double or triple the number of the online tournament draws while these tournaments are a great sample size for what decks would be good, there's a lot that doesn't come into play in these tournaments. For example, time. Now, time rules are a toxic thing, and I understand that. I have been on both the winning and losing side of time. Mostly losing. But it is something that exists in the game. And I don't think that you can, it's comparing apples to oranges where there's not time in online Yu-Gi-Oh, but there is uh, in real life Yu-Gi-Oh. And you might make the, the argument that, you know, online is more pure. Yeah. Like some online tournaments do have like a like a time set up. Like they have like a counter on a website. So you just have to have that, have that link open while you play. Here's the thing about that. It's like online tournaments, they, you know, I like to say online tournaments are more pure, but in real life, you know, shuffling takes a lot longer. You know, there are so many things that happens, like side conversations, and and I liked, I wish that these things weren't a part of the game, but they are, and it's like to mention the pressure of being like in a room full of people you don't know, or just like that environment adds like more to it too. Right. So there's a lot of these aspects. These, um, just the uh, technicalities, I guess, of a tournament, just the way tournaments function. And, you know, like when you're at a tournament, it starts very early. And a Yu Gi Oh tournament is different than Yu Gi Oh, like playing a match. Because when you're playing in an actual tournament, like Patrick talks about in his book, Road of the King, there are so many other factors other than the game itself that have to be win and lost. Like, Getting to the event on time, registering your deck list, um, you know, just there's the there's the there's the mental game that can somehow be influenced in real life, but it can't be influenced as much online by asking uh, different questions and trying to psych out your opponent. And while that might seem uh, less relevant, you know, in some cases than other, it does exist. And I just think that when you win a real life Yu-Gi-Oh tournament. There is so much more fulfillment than if you win an online tournament because not only are you winning, you know, say there's nine rounds, not only did you go eight and one or nine and oh or whatever, whatever your record was throughout that tournament, you won the battle of getting to your rounds on time, you won the battle of, you know, not making a deck list error, you won the battle of you know not getting into a stupid argument with your opponent that cost you a match for a disqualification like there are so many things like you could compare all right the drawing system is what it, what it is um the mechanic of randomizing your decks is what it is but there are so many layers to a tournament that's like you know how tired you are how hungry you are you know like sometimes you want to eat <laughs> like yeah, it's the human component to all of it. The human component, exactly. So, um, you know, when people say that they won one of these big-time tournaments, uh, you know, I don't really take it the same way as if they won a regionals. Like, I think a regionals is... It, it can be easier, you know? Like, as far as a, a tournament, uh, as far as the matches go, like, you could be playing against better players online, but the thing is, like, there, it's not... It's not realistic because there are certain things that happened with, again, with time and with all these extra 
you know, exterior forces. They're just like real world factors. Even like the cards you actually obtain to play in real life, like you're not going to have access to the entire card pool of Yu-Gi-Oh in real life, as opposed to how you would online. Like, for example, when I was testing online, like I got blown out by a for hire deck that had a lightning storm in it. I'm like, if you're playing for hire, odds are you're probably not going to have lightning storm. So it's just like, just like little things like that, you know, like, are you actually able to get the cards that you need to play the game in real life? As opposed to online, where it's just like, I could just search any card that I want, add it to my deck, and just boom. It's the most optimized, powerful build of that deck possible. Whereas, like, in real life, like, yeah, you know, that's probably not going to happen. So, like, there's, like, little factors like that that come into play when you're playing in real life that you're not going to face in, in online. But on the flip side of that, you could also say that, well... If I had the option to build any deck any way that I want and make it as powerful as I want, obviously following the ban list, then it really just comes down to skill and not just like money. So it's just like, I, I don't know. Like I see both sides of the argument. I'm not sure which one is correct, though. It would have been interesting if we had this whole situation a year ago when Combo Thunder was the best deck because the people that were able to play this deck were the people who own prize cards, right? The Chaos Emperor... Arm- Dragon of Armageddon prize card. And it, we're, I think we're lucky to not have a prize card be relevant in the meta because this would add to the conversation. You know, if, if someone's playing one to two copies of a card that costs twelve to $1,500, I, I sold mine for $1,200, $1,250 or something, like, you do not have those cards. Like, there are very... I would say it's like less than 10%, no, like five, less than 5 to 3% of the, of the Yu-Gi-Oh community that own these cards. So, I mean, you're obviously going to see them like the higher up you go to the, on uh during the tournament and at the tables, but yeah, like I get, no, I, I get where you're coming from with that. So, luckily luckily enough, like, all the cards in the meta right now are accessible. I would say, like, yeah, Lightning Storm, it's a card. I get it. If you don't own it, like, I only own two in my deck, but I could be playing three. I, I try not to play cards that I don't own just for my own sake of, you know, if if I'm playing with three Lightning Storms and then all of a sudden I'm only playing with two, obviously there's a, var- a variance there as how much I'm going to draw it, but... Yeah, you don't open as much against Altergeist. <laughs> well, for the sake of online tournaments, people don't care. Like they just want to win money. Like that's all they care about. So, I I think that while we can appreciate these online tournaments for what they are, they're a nice sample size of what what decks would be good, what decks would be relevant. I think that they don't carry the same weight as online tournaments. I'm sorry. Like even like a 240 person online tournament does not carry the same weight as even a 240 person regionals. Even with the the skill level of certain players in those tournaments being much higher than the average. Yeah, like I understand that. That's it it's it's a good it's a, it's definitely like a, a good argument that there are better players because there are there's there the pe- players that are on these tournaments they're invested into the game because they're they know about the tournaments they're on facebook they're they're constantly refreshing their page for Yu-Gi-Oh content and you're not going to get that many casuals who are willing to pay money who you know know that they're going to play against good players so i want to say that while the competitive standard is a little bit higher online the entire um, mechanic of an, of a of a real life tournament is just so much different. Like it's a different it's a different sport. Like it's it's just a, it's it's a different animal and altogether. Because again, real life tournaments it requires endurance. It requires um, mental bandwidth. It it requires um, just having the energy to keep on going. And the mental capacity. And that's hard, you know. Forget about all, like, the drawing, randomizations, the shuffling. Just assume that all of that stuff is the same. The The personal human interaction with your opponent and the mental game is so such a big difference maker. Like, if you read this book, Road of the King, that I have in my hand now, like, there's a whole section on it about the mental game. Like, 
if you're playing GOAT format and you ask your opponent, is the Torrential gone? And they look at their deck, that means the Torrential's gone. Like, or they have it in their hand. And there are so many mental, uh, there's so many mental hoops and hurdles that you could put your opponent through before having to make a read. And that is, like, people don't realize it, but that is such a big deal when it comes to playing Yu-Gi-Oh! And that's a part of the game. It's a part of the the sport of of reading your opponent and making plays accordingly. Like, who has the better poker face? Who has the better poker face? And if, if my opponent has Alistair and they're trying to see if I have uh, Called by the Grave, are they going to link off their Alistair? You know, I could say, like, oh, do you have Called by the Grave? And if they look at their back row, like, and they flip it up and they, they have, like, an expression on their face, like, maybe I'll think that they have Called by the Grave. You never know. Like, that's, like, a cheesy example, but... I get what you're saying, because, like, do you remember the the last trip that we went on? I think it was to Atlanta, and I played that money match against uh, Pro Phil. Yeah. So during that matchup, on my end, there was a sense that I was not in control of that game. Like the entire time we were playing, like you could just feel that he was a better player without even like looking at the board. And that kind of like, I guess, intimidation, like little things like that, like the psychology of it kind of plays in for me. Like when I play the game, like you could tell, like when you sit across from somebody just by the way they handle their cards, the way they announce things. Like, you could tell they're a good player if you're really up for a battle or a really good matchup here. So it's just like, I feel like you don't really get that online because, like, yeah, it's a it's a real-world component. It's it's the actual, like, things you would come across if you were playing in a tournament, a regional, YCS, whatever. Exactly. Like, there are so many things. And eventually, I, I find this really interesting because... Elias, who co-hosted the last episode, for those of you who watched the previous episode of the Shadow Realm podcast, uh, one thing that Elias and I do all of the time is talk about purely the mental game. We Obviously, the format, like, when it gets stale, it could be really stale. Like, it could be really bad. Like, the worst, the worst format was Striker Orcus. Like, I hated that. Like, the, the format was solved so early on in the format and it was just so boring to think about new things because I'm like, oh, wow, this card doesn't draw three like Engage does. Like, it's not good enough. So, like, there was, it was just like if you're playing that, if you're not playing Striker Orcus, you're at a disadvantage because they got to draw cards off Engage. They got Utility off Afterburners and Widow Anchor. And they got, like, ver- like efficient, uh, the, the efficient capabilities of the Orcus deck with the Utility of Dingirsu. Like, there were so many things that they had to their advantage. So there was no point, like... Sky Striker Orcus was the best deck, hands down. But what you could do to make yourself a better player, besides you know just preparing for the mirror match, the Sky Striker Orcus mirror match, you could just work on your mental game, and that is what made us better than the players who we were playing against. Like just making eye contact with our opponent at the right times, and. Just making certain reads was very important. Stuff that's impossible to do online, really. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't think that they carry the same merit. If you play online, are you a better Yu-Gi-Oh! player because you don't have to get out your pajamas? Is that what it is? Listen, I am a better... P- Listen, if you go on my dueling book record, it'll say that I have like 1,600 wins and 1,000 losses. But I guarantee you, that at least like 200 of those losses are disconnects, which I'm like, I laugh because like, even I was playing today and there was three matches where it was game three and I was about to attack for game and I got disconnected. I was so mad. Like my Wi-Fi was just acting up. You know, I, I played some more, but it's like, oh, in real life, you know, this obviously I, I just don't disconnect from the game. I, I continue playing and I win. So like there are certain things that, obviously get in the way in both scenarios like time is an issue obviously time is very toxic right now that's another discussion for another day but there's hurdles both online and in real life and i don't think that they're comparable that's the hard thing because like maybe you have spotty connection but like that's not a thing that happens in real Yu-Gi-Oh. that's just a product of trying to play a simulation online so uh yeah i i personally like i think if you if you say you win one of these big time online tournaments, I say that you take it for what it is. But I like if if you go on champ trade, which is 
pretty much the premier ranking system as far as players. They have an algorithm. They give you a certain amount of points for a YCS win. They give you a certain amount of points for regional wins or tops or whatever. And the same thing for ARGs. And I think they have like another formula for Shonen Jumps, like in the form of Jeff Jones, because he won a Shonen Jump uh, series tournament. I don't really think that you would incorporate these online tournaments because they they don't hold the same merit as you look at you look at the integrity of, of these tournaments. I'm not saying that the online tournaments on being are held right now, because obviously we're Babani Lounge and hello, we have our own online tournaments. I think on average, y'all should totally sign up for, <laughs> which y'all should uh, totally sh- sign up for, uh, Bamani Lounge tournaments Wednesdays and Sundays uh, around nine PM. But uh, yeah, like I, I don't know, like the integrity of these tournaments. Well, I'm I'm not criticizing these companies that are coming out with these tournaments. Like I'm not saying any bad things about them. They simply do not have the same integrity as Konami and as ARG. And as pro play games, like they don't just, I mean, pro play games, they have online, they don't have the same validity. Yeah. Cause you, you think about these tournaments, they're set up professionally. They have rules and regulations. They implement these rules. They have ways of disciplining players who are cheating. And this does not go on in online tournaments. I mean, it's kind of hard to cheat uh, without it being noticed. Um, like, I don't know how they deal with AFKs and things like that, but that's not really cheating. That's just being a scumbag. Um, the worst kind of scumbag, worst kind of scumbag, uh, almost as scummy as, as cheating in time. But what I'm saying is there is no, uh, implementation of discipline on these tournaments. So say, uh, in one of these big time tournaments online, you just add a random card from your deck to your hand. Like, what are they going to do? Disqual- disqualify you from the tournament when you otherwise wouldn't have won anyway? Like, are they banning you from all future tournaments? How are they monitoring that? Like, how are they implementing that? Are they? Do they have a list of every banned player? Like, how do you check that someone just doesn't make another account under another name and then just enters another tournament? Like, you see what I'm saying? There is no, like, while I respect the people that are making these tournaments and they're doing the best they can and maybe on, on eyesight, these tournaments seem legit and they seem like they're working smoothly. You're going to see after a couple of them that people are like, people are going to be scumbags and then there's going to be no, um, reprimanding of these people. So it's, it's hard. I mean, you, you would still get some of that in like real life Yu-Gi-Oh as well too. Like, you know, if you yeah, but the difference is the difference is, and Konami, if, if someone cheats and someone points it out and they get discovered, like they actually have a way of banning you because they have a Konami ID, which is your gateway into Yu-Gi-Oh! Like if you if your ID is banned or your name is banned or under their banned list, the banned players list, or if you have uh, like a like a ban for a year or something, that means you can't play for a year. Like you you don't do the, the crime don't do the time if you can't do the crime sort of thing. And I don't think that the online tournaments can replicate that. So is there? So you're saying there's a way to like, let's say like you get caught like cheating in some type of way in an online tournament, and what you're saying is there's no way for them to like find out if you know you're a certain player. Like if you choose to like re-enter one of their tournaments under like I guess a different name or whatever. So like that's what you're saying. Like there's there's no way to like verify there's no way yeah there's no way of verifying it because like say your your name is is darnell and you cheat because you know you're an alter guys player what else are you gonna do and you get found out and you get banned and then you know you're like all right let me pretend to be a better player and let me sign in as henry furchow uh the king of all combo decks and you sign up as henry and of course you win the tournament and uh and then all of a sudden you know you're not Henry, <laughs> and no one knows that because you know it's signups are on Facebook, and they don't really care because as long as you're entering with your PayPal, which is all they care about, they really don't like I. If if they if these tournaments care, like if they get if someone pays them, there's no way they're not going to take their money. There is no way. Meanwhile, Konami like they care more about the integrity of their tournament rather than the money because when you think about it. Like, Konami loses money on all of their tournaments. Like, 
Like, there's no way they break even with all the space they rent. They do it as an investment because it's a way of them, you know, meeting the community and you know, they get players involved. People buy their product to enter tournaments with their cards. So it makes sense from a business standpoint. But, like, it's just a different animal. It's just a different animal because Konami, they'll, they'll, they get, the, they get the, their revenue from selling cards. Online tournaments, they get their revenue from the tournaments. So if, say, there's a well-known cheater who wants to enter a tournament and they say, here's my $20, there are very few online tournaments that will reject their $20. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I, I see where you're coming from that. Coming from with that, and that, that does make sense. I think that just comes down to, like, more of an infrastructure thing. So you did make the point of, like... uh how Konami makes their turn makes their money versus uh, online tournaments, but I think that could just be like an infrastructure thing. Like those online organizations may not have the things in place in order to verify certain things like that. I don't know if just the way things are set up that they can't verify certain things. I don't know if they're just not big enough to go through the steps to actually verify. But yeah, it sounds like it could be like an infrastructure issue. But I get where you're coming from. I think I think my general. My general point, Darnell, here is that while on surface level, it might seem that the game that you're playing in real life is the same as the game that you're playing online, behind the scenes, there is a huge difference in accountability, legitimacy, and integrity. And because that exists, because that gap exists, you can the um the weight that these tournaments carry are vastly different like you cannot compare a 240 person online tournament to a 240 person real life tournament and it has nothing to do with the gameplay it has everything to do with the human element and the integrity behind the people who are hosting the tournaments listen all I know is online in real life, a loss to Altergeist feels just as salty. So I'm happy with that. With that said, I do not mean to diss online Yu-Gi-Oh! I love online Yu-Gi-Oh! I think it's a great tool. I play a lot more online Yu-Gi-Oh! than I am allowed to play real life Yu-Gi-Oh! Just because I'm at school, I'm a student, all that. I love playing in the Bamani Lounge tournaments online and Yu-Gi-Oh! Pro every Wednesday and Sunday around 9 p.m. for great prizes. EDO Pro now. We've upgraded. We've upgraded. We've upgraded. All right, so uh, let's move into the second section of the show, which is going to be the meta rundown. So we'll make this pretty short because it's pretty a simple format right now, Darnell. It seems like it's two decks. Uh, the best decks are Eldlick and Slash Eldlick Invoked. I consider them the same deck. Both of them play Golden Boy. It's really just a difference of six cards or eight cards, whatever it might be, and a couple of extra deck cards. And then the other deck is the Rock deck, which I had a deck profile for on I'm a So Angry. So if you guys haven't seen that yet, it was posted about a couple days ago. By the time this podcast goes up, it'll probably be a week ago. So uh, yeah, go check that out. It was you know taken to pretty pretty well. I broke the card roles and types into the roles stated in Road of the King by Patrick Holbin. So that was an interesting twist. I think people like that style of deck profile. But what I enjoyed about the deck is explaining, you know, how much I really did like the deck. I took to this deck very quickly. I didn't realize that we were going to get broken decks out of the Secret Slayer set. I don't think anybody did. <laughs> For the last, like, you know, like these kind of, uh, I don't know what they're referred to as, but these sets, they have just archetypes, three archetypes. And it's like a deck building set. I think that's what people call them. It's a deck building set. Is that a, is that the core set, or I get, I get the terminology screwed up? No, core sets are, are sets that have like uh, general support, like uh, the new Eternity Code set that's coming out. That's considered a core set. But Secret Slayers apparently just had two broken archetypes. Uh, the third one, Rika, that was kind of a miss, but. The other two, Eldlick and Adamancipators, they're the best two decks in the game. And that has not happened since Necros. Oh, sorry, Sky Strikers were one of them, but the other decks in those in that set was not really good. That was one deck. But two decks, that has not happened since Necros was one of them in the Secret Forces back in 2015. 
and then we had Ritual Beast and Yusenju. So all three of those archetypes were viable. Uh, Yusenju's, I think, I'm not sure if they had a top or two, but I definitely know that Ritual Beast did. Uh, and then here we have Eldlick, which will probably get tops for the next year or two years. I think this deck has a very long lifespan. I see this deck being a very good deck for a very long time, kind of considerable to Sky Strikers, True Draco. I think True Draco is the, the best comparison to this deck. But overall, I am very happy. Oh, you don't like that comparison, Darnell? I, I just, I don't like Draco or Striker. Oh, you don't like Draco? Well, that's funny because that's probably the best deck that's ever played Traps. But I digress. Uh, so I like to think that these decks will be good for a long time. Now, people are saying that Block Dragon, that's going to get bad. This, this deck's not going to be good anymore. Newsflash, there are so many games that I win where I don't even care about Block Dragon. And I used to play Desires, and the amount of times I banished Block Dragon off my Desires, it happened every game. So, uh, And I won a lot of those games. So I don't think that Block Dragon, listen, I think that there will probably be better decks. I think that Gersu and Orcus, if everything stays the way it is in Orcus, and Gersu comes out, and they just don't ban Nightmare, and they leave, or they leave it at one or whatever, I think that deck is probably going to be the better deck. But right now, if you're going first with Ad Emancipators, and you draw two-card combo, like, that's just, that's Exodia right there. Unless your opponent main decks Dark Ruler, main decks uh, Nibiru, or Sphere Mode, something crazy like that. In that case, they're just building their deck to beat yours. This is what I like to say about the best deck. The best deck is being played around in the main deck of other people's decks. So what I mean by that is people are main decking Dark Ruler specifically for Adamantipators. So if you mean to tell me that Adamantipators, eh, it's not so good. Like, if people are maining cards in their deck to counter the best deck, of course it's the best deck. And newsflash, banning Block Dragon does very little to do with like having Dark Ruler. So, like, I'm still going to make the same board. The only thing that Block Dragon really does is allowing you to have a follow-up for the next turn. So, yeah, Darnell, uh, what do you think about the current state of the meta, and where do you think it is going? I think Eldlick is trash and overrated. <laughs> Come on. Like, it's... Alright, uh, starting with Eldlick, it's a great deck. Like, I'm, I'm testing it out myself. I've, I've played a couple games with it. I like it. The only thing I'm not a fan of is the whole mechanic where you need Golden Boy on the field for the deck to do anything. So if you face a really good player that knows what to stop, then it's just like the deck can't do anything. And I think the Invoked variant kind of helps like mitigate that. But I, bottom line, I think Eldic is is great. Like its ability to recur resources is like amazing. Like like I've won games that I shouldn't have won just because of that ability, but uh, I think going forward, I think that deck's going to have a hard time just because from what I'm seeing online, so many people just siding in so much hate for that deck. You got a format with three evenlies, three lightning storms, cosmic cyclones, just ways to call by the grave even just like hurts that deck a lot. So right now, I think it's one of the best decks, but even from like the online tournaments you're seeing, you're kind of seeing adamant. Uh, how do you pronounce it? The the rock deck, an Emancipator. You're kind of seeing that dominate even more, like almost etching Eldic out a little bit from the results that I've seen. An Emancipator, really unfair. That deck is practically Goki. Like plays through multiple disruptions, even the Biru, which is really busted, and just ends on a board with like. I, I do want to. I do want to say something about Block Dragon because I said it was just good for extending. I do have to say though. Black Dragon does a lot when it comes to playing around a beard. That's something that it does because if you get if you search Black Dragon before you get in a beard, then in that case, Black Dragon saves you. So if they if they ban Black Dragon in the cases that you get in a beard, then yes, I agree. Like the deck becomes a lot less powerful in that instance. However, on average, the deck still makes the same boards. So if you don't have Nibiru, if you don't have Dark Ruler. Like, I get it that those are very powerful cards, and they're being played. So, you know, that will happen. But game as far as game ones, yeah. And as we've seen, 
combo decks always adapt. You've seen this with Combo Thunder. We've seen Eclipse Wyvern being banned, you know? We've we've seen Agapane being banned. And they still adapted, you know? Like, they, they played with, you know, Colossus. And then, obviously, Colossus got banned. And eventually, the deck died. But then Rockets came out. And then Combo Thunder kind of just blended into Rockets. Like, and, you know, Combo was pretty much combo like it was the same thing and now now the rock deck's a little bit better than the dragon deck but i think that you know you have a similar kind of deck that does the same thing as as rockets except it has obviously has block dragon but i also think that what makes rocks so good at emancipators is that they have a broken level eight synchro that says excavate five cards and then if they don't respond to that part then just pick up the number up to the number of rocks that you excavate. That is busted. And and then like it has a second effect. Wait, there's more. And if you have a water in your graveyard, which Halcofibrax is a water, by the way, you can just negate a spell or trap and then destroy it. <laughs> like how is that fair at all? <laughs> so um, yeah, that that. I think that card is another reason why the deck is good. But also, like, Kwakimaru Guardian, busted. Doki Doki, busted. Researcher, busted. Like, all these cards, like, maybe they're not... Maybe they're not the same level as the best cards that have ever come out in the game, whatever. Like, I think Dengursu is one of the most broken cards. I think Masterpiece is one of the most broken cards. And I think maybe Black Dragon's on that level. But, like, all the cards are averagely good. Like, all the cards are, like... They're all good. Like all the cards are decent, and you can or you can draw them backwards or forwards. It doesn't matter. Black Dragon allows you to draw them in any in any any way. Like you can draw them. You you can you can search it off Gallant Granite, or that you can go into Union Carry and equip it, or you could you know do whatever. Like there there's a lot of things. So Black Dragon offers a lot of flexibility. So um, I think that the the the. If Black Dragon gets banned, like I still think the deck will adapt. Like I think it will. Right now, Black Dragon is what we're used to. It allows you to do a lot of broken things. If it gets banned, then sure. Like I guess we'll have to adapt and see what new cards come out. But what I like about this deck is that it is a rock deck. It's not like where you have to where you have to wait for a new Medolce card to come out for Medolce's to be good. You just have to wait for a rock card to come out, and then you know it's good. So. <laughs> I don't know. It seems pretty. Seems pretty good. I hate these draw sphere mode or die formats. Yeah, well, I I don't know. I, I like when there's a best deck because it shows off the best players. Like I think Cody Angelov, shout outs to him. He pioneered one of the original variants that played on a Monopyra. I'm not currently playing that build anymore. It's actually the build I did showcase on I'm so angry. But I switched over to the other build once again. I'm flip flopping back and forth because I think there are pros and cons to each. But I'm playing the extender version again, uh, which he kind of meshed his deck a little bit too, both of the engines together. Uh, he's also playing the Medolce, uh, putting Sessour, and he's playing the Dododo Glove, which used to be one or the other, and now he's playing both. So anyway, what I wanted to say is that the best players, like Cody, for instance, I think especially in this format, with him being one of the more popular players online, uh, they will shine bright uh, in these in these sorts of formats it's just like we've seen the best players win with sky striker orcas because it was a clear-cut best deck and it's like all right here's your chess pieces everyone ha is playing the same chess pieces and who's the better chess player it's exactly that you know so you don't like diversity in top cut no i don't like diversity i like one best deck <laughs> sounds very stale and boring no, that actually contradicts to what I said before about how everyone was playing Sky Strike Orcus, and that was one of the more boring formats. But I, 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 no, I do like diversity, but I think that the best players shine in the one deck formats or the two deck formats. When it starts to become a couple different decks, you know, it it starts to be uh, a little bit of luck gets involved more. It's like what are your bad matchups? What are your good matchups? It's hard to prepare for a lot of different matchups. So then it's like, all right, I could play cards that are good against specific matchups or sorry, great against specific matchups or are just okay against everything. Like I could play a card like Ash 
that's good against everything, or okay against everything, or I can play a card like, um, I could play a card that's specifically for one deck. Like, I could play a kaiju. I could play kaijus for for Salomon Greats. So, wait, so if you say, like, all right, you have, like, let's say, two best decks like we have right now. You know those are the decks that you're most likely going to see, like, 80% of the time you walk into any dueling room. Now, you're say, are you saying that someone who takes a deck that's not those decks, like something more roguish or lower tier, studies the meta and walks into that room with all the counters for those decks? Is there any validity to that? Do you think, like, that person's not a good player because they're just like, okay, well, everybody's playing this. I'm going to go this way. Oh, I think that, no, that's called the meta choice. That's a meta call. That's completely fine. Like, that's that's another reason why the, those formats are skillful because... Like, yeah, you could be playing one of those decks and win. That's skillful. But if it's even more skillful to not be playing one of those decks and win. That's what I'm saying. Uh, you know, if it's uh, if it's assumed that there are multiple... Like, say there are eight best decks or there are eight decks that are equally viable. Then, you know, it's like, all right, someone could win a tournament by not having the best deck. They could just ha- win a tournament by running into good matchups, you know, kind of drawing well this and that when they make you a better player because you walked in that room with not the best deck and no there's a difference because it just like uh patrick hoban talks about this in his book you know just because someone wins a tournament doesn't mean they deserve to win a tournament it just means that there had to be a winner and whoa whoa what <laughs> what that doesn't make any sense no it does make a lot of sense so if you grind it out for like eight nine rounds even like i'm not all right so this one i'm not saying that the player is bad but what i'm saying is you can you can get lucky with matchups if if the if the format's even and everyone's here someone has to win the battle because there has to be a winner eventually it's a tournament like it's designed for there to be a winner so, the, like, a, a, a lot of those times when there's a lot of different decks, there is no best deck. And there is no 10x advantage that Patrick Hoban talks about. There is just a winner by chance. Like, someone has to win by chance. When there is a best deck, there is more of a, of a skill gap. Like, the players who know the interactions are going to win. Like, in the Sky Striker Mirror, it was very skillful. People who knew you when to use Shark Cannon at the right time, like, those people generally did better at tournaments because there was a best deck you know or, or sky striker orcus there was a best deck you had to know how those decks worked in order to operate and if you won that tournament you knew the ins and outs of this deck you knew how to beat it you knew how to play with it you knew how to play around it you knew how to play around the hand traps you knew the defensive cards to play in the format that doesn't happen as much in these even formats where there's eight different form there's eight different uh decks because there really is no answer wait wait, wait, wait. so because the deck is so powerful just naturally built the that's just the way the deck is printed for this format i'm not like how is that more skill intensive because you walked into the room with it but wait, you walked into the room with a deck that was naturally built to be more powerful than everyone else's as opposed, as opposed to walking, wait, wait, as opposed to walking into a room with an even playing field, you don't know what you're gonna face. So you're saying you're not the better player just because you took out a bunch of different other decks, as opposed to you faced a million rounds of the same powerful deck that everyone's aware of. Um, I think we're gonna have to agree to disagree because you have a good point that I get that there are e- it's an even playing field, and you know you're using your deck and you're getting past all the other decks. But I'm, I'm telling you, like. To win a tournament like that, there's less of the person who wins that tournament is a result of there just having to be a winner. Because like because there is no best deck and there is no correct like medical or whatever, which a lot of times there there isn't. I think there has been formats where there hasn't been. I think like the format with Metal Foes, Paleozoics, and ABCs was one of those like the like those were the best decks, but there were a lot of other decks back then, too, that were okay. Um, this was before Zoo, so... Not, not to cut you off, but, like, lightly going back to your argument of uh, of uh, online tournaments and how there's a million other factors that, that go into actually playing the game, like, you can make that same argument here, that there's a bunch of other factors that go into the, your deck choices and, and what cards you play against certain matchups. I just think, like, 
you can't just say like, oh, it's the most powerful deck. It's the best deck and take that and run with it and say like, that's the most skillful player because they took the most powerful weapon in the room all the way to the top. I think it takes a lot more skill and a lot more thought process to take a deck that's not considered the best and clean house in a 400, 500, 700 player tournament. Okay. Instead of going back on this theoretically, I'm going to give you a prime, clear cut, tangible example. And I don't even have to look it up because I have it memorized in my head. This is the October of 20. 16 2015 october of 2015 ycs dallas eric christensen i i was pretty good friends with him he went 16 and 0 with infernoids in the middle of necros format and this was when uh omega just came out no one really knew what the card did and he just obliterated everyone. Like, he obliterated everyone. And this was when Necros was the clear-cut best deck. And there was a skill gap between the players who knew it and the players that didn't. And he was playing a deck that was probably not as powerful, didn't have the higher ceiling. Um, but he knew exactly how to play around each and every player. So he was the best player at that tournament. And he didn't win by chance. He won because he had... He made the correct medical. So that's what you were saying about, you know, you're not necessarily, not in every scenario are you going in with the best deck. You know what the best deck is. You have full access to what the best cards are. And you know what you're going to lose to. You know what you're going to win against. And he saw that Infernoid had a great matchup. Now, if he were playing an Infernoid at an event where there was a million different decks, he probably wouldn't have done as well because it's randomized, like what matchups you play. It's it's subjective to what your matchups are. It has nothing, it has less to do about deck building and it has more to do with what your matchups are. So maybe that's the way deck, that's the way Yu-Gi-Oh should be. Maybe that's more uh, rewarding in a way, but I think it's more rewarding to know a format and having a result based off of your hard work of preparing. That's what I'm trying to say. No, I, I get what you're saying. And that the whole story you just told, like, makes sense. Like, I, I, I better understand where you're coming from. I just think you shouldn't discredit those other factors that, yes, like, you can make a meta call and choose a certain deck that does well and is going to perform in a room of a certain variety. I just think that's part of the game. Like, I don't think you should be discredited as a player and, like, or anything like that just because you made that call like we all want to win like we all want to top like that's just how it is all right so uh that's our little ramble there on the medical i mean it began it began with you know us talking about the two decks and then it can became a, a sub discussion of what kind of formats we like but it, it reflecting back on the original topic the meta right now is very much i think a clear-cut uh two deck format so I think that what we're how we're talking about, I think that this is one of those skillful formats where there is, you know, the best deck and you have to know how to play around it. Now, I think there are other decks in the format. I think that if there was like a YCS or something right now, I guarantee you a deck like Shadals would win. Like it would be one of those random decks, but there would definitely be Shadals. There would definitely be one Rocket deck. There would definitely be a Dino player. Subterra's Altergeist would probably get one player. It would probably be like top eight would probably be like, Six, or sorry, four Animatipators, two Elvlick, you know, maybe one Shadal and one Dino or whatever. And then, you know, the Shadal player would win. Or, like, once you get into top eight, the meta is different. Like, entering a nine-round tournament, Animatipator is probably the best deck. But maybe when you get into top eight, you know, you want to play the deck that's okay against both matchups, which is Shadal's. Like, you have a Shadal face down, where they're going to send it with Golden Boy, you get a plus one. Like, that's broken. So... There's a lot of different things that can happen in the course of a tournament. That's what I'm saying. Like, when it comes to a, a real-life tournament and an online tournament, there's a lot of different things. And then when it comes to the meta, like, there's a lot of different things that happens there, too. So, I don't know. I think our, our, our two conversations kind of have blended into one just because I think they kind of, they kind of cooperate in a way. So, with, with this being essentially a two-deck a two format with Adam Emancipator and Elick. Do you see, 
like any other options like Altergeist, Subterror, like any of those decks like performing well? I think Dinosaur is definitely good. Like I definitely don't think you automatically lose if you're not playing this deck, which it's not. T- I think there's a best deck. It's not tier zero best deck, but it's tier one best deck. It's it's clear cut. It's it's clear enough. But that being said, you can go into a tournament with like you know watered down sky strikers and and do okay you know you can go into a tournament i've lost i've been, I've been playing the rack deck i've lost to i've lost this two strikers before usually it's because they have mystic mine or whatever but like there's a lot of different things that happen so i definitely think that there's a lot of cards in the game right now you know there's a lot of sacky cards like super poly mystic mind uh dark ruler no more where it doesn't matter if you're playing the best deck it just you know your opponent could just draw the, the out and you know they, you lose so that's the way the game is and i, I like that there's checks and balances to the game uh, which is good uh, I definitely don't want to have another Goki format. I don't think it's the same as Goki's just because there's a lot of more uh, defensive cards. There's a lot more bombs in the game right now. Well, that's the thing about Goki format. Everyone says it was the best deck, but I don't think it has the results, though. Like, Striker was outperforming it. Even Ultrageist was outperforming it. But in terms of power, like, it's unmeasured. Like, Goki was just way unfair. Yeah, I agree. Um, so... Just transition to the next segment in our show. Uh, we have Road of the King. I want to talk about one subsection of the book. It began. It begins on on page one hundred and fifty. For those of you who ho- at home who have the book, uh, it's called "Who's the Beatdown." And here, Patrick Hoban talks about exactly what we were talking about, comparing two decks. And "Who's the Beatdown" basically identifies one's uh, a deck's role within the game, right? And a player's role within the game. So if we look, I always like to use the two classic examples that Patrick Hoban uses. The two decks he uses are Mermails being the combo deck and Firefist being the um, the stun deck of the format. Uh, he, I know we usually say that back row decks are control decks, but in his book, he refers to control decks as uh, and, and who's the beatdown section he refers to the control deck as the deck with the higher ceiling so as the combo deck and he refer, he refers to the beatdown as the deck who doesn't have the, the the higher ceiling so let me apply his theories to the current format so who's the beatdown so the beatdown is the role of the aggressor we try to end the game quickly because if the game goes on long enough then they'll out resource us so the aggressor in this format is Eldlick, because if if the game goes on, eventually the rock deck just outresources the, uh, the the zombie deck. Correct. So, um, what he what the beatdown has to do with everything is the fact that once we identify who the beatdown is in the format, we build a control deck to basically. Um, to basically beat this beat down. So which deck is bigger? You know, this is the, the checklist for identifying the beat down deck. Which deck is bigger? The the bigger deck is the control deck. So let's compare let's let's compare this checklist. So I have a checklist of which down which deck is the beat down in the format. And there's a checklist. So Darnell, let's go together. I'll ask you the questions of the checklist and you tell me between Adam Anticipator and Eldlick. Uh, which one do you think it is? So let, we'll we'll start. So which deck is bigger? Yeah, can you hear me? Okay. So which deck is bigger? Which deck has the higher ceiling? Adam Emancipator or Eldlick? For that, I think I'm gonna go with. I'm gonna go with Eldlick. Which deck makes the biggest board? Well, the rock deck. Yeah. Okay. That's what. That's what. That's what bigger means. Um. Yeah, uh, which deck has inevitability? Uh, what what inevitability means if the, the two engines clashed, right? Without engine, without non-engine cards, so no solemn warnings, no solemn judgments, no ash. If you just crashed the Elvik deck with the Rock deck, what deck do you think wins? Uh, Time Wizard beatdown. Nah, the Rock deck. The Rock deck. 
Inevitability um, would definitely be the Rock deck, right? It has so many more resources. Like, the only way that Eldrick interacts is with Con uh, Conquistador, whatever that card is called. It's the one that pops face-up monsters. So that's really their, all, that's their really only interruption that they have. So this deck is the control. So the Ad Emancipator so far gets the first two categories. Um, uh, which deck has the higher turn ceiling. This deck is the control, so that's also out of Emancipators. They can make the biggest board in one turn. Which deck has the higher game ceiling? This deck is the control deck. It's the same thing, out of Emancipators. makes the biggest board. If the two decks, uh, if the two engines clash, we already said that, uh, which one would win? This is the control deck. Which deck special summons more? This is the control deck. This is all out of Emancipators winning so far. Which deck is more proactive? This deck is the control deck, out of Emancipators, once again. Which deck is reactive? Now, this deck is the beatdown. Elvlick is the beatdown of the format. They play cards to react to your opponent. They play uh, Conquistador to uh, destroy a face-up monster. They play Haquero, which banishes a card in the graveyard. They play the Counter Trap, which negates a spell or trap or a bleed monster effect. While you control Golden Boy. Golden Boy itself sends a card on the field. All of these cards are reactive. So they are meant to break a board or stop it from happening. They try to stop the opponent from playing the game. Um, and then which deck has more defensive cards? This is the beatdown. So uh, it's clear here that the Adamantzer Pater deck is the beatdown. And the control deck is the rock deck, right? The Eldrick deck is the beatdown. The, the rock deck is the uh, control deck. So uh, we're comparing this to 2014, where Mermails was the control deck and Firefist was the beatdown. And there are many reasons why Mermel's uh, and Patrick Hoban's uh, opinion was the better deck. So if we assign these roles uh, to similar decks within the format, we can always know how to deal with them, which is why this is relevant. Because if we know how to deal with them, we can always be ahead of the format, right? So, um, you know, role characteristics. The control deck has the bigger deck, higher ceiling, has inevitability, it's proactive, aims to extend the game, raises their own ceiling. Winner, if the engines clash, often takes fewer risks, where beatdown is the opposite. It's smaller, does not have inevitability, it's reactive, aims to shorten the game, lowers the opponent's ceiling, loser if the engine clashed, and often takes more risks. So... There are obviously reasons why Elvick can win games. It's a very good deck. But, uh, you know, why I think this is relevant, this article is relevant, is because it teaches us how to get ahead in formats. Uh, I always think that people who simply net deck other people, that's no, there's nothing wrong with net decking. I, I think that's fine. It's the same thing as using other people's articles for your own research. It's fine. Uh, but you'll never be ahead in the game if you're not thinking for yourself. So that's why I like this book, Road of the King. Uh, I'm not sp sponsored in any way. My friend Pat doesn't tell me to, to promote his book. I just like to because I think it's important. And if you want to get ahead in the format, you have to look at old formats. You have to know the look at theory behind these decks and behind the, the game mechanic. And you have to understand why you know certain decks are better in certain positions. So that's why I really like at Emancipators right now because they have inevitability. If the two decks clash continuously in a long, long uh, tournament, nine rounds, you would have, um, you know, you would have, obviously, it comes down to whether, you know, non-engine cards are drawn, but, you know, say, say you and your opponent have the equal amount of chance to draw their non-engine cards. If both of you don't open any, then the Ad Emancipator deck wins every time. And that's a, you know, that's a, uh, that's why I always love to play control decks, right? Because if you just take your deck against their deck, you know, head on without any sound judgments or, or uh, called by the graves or super polymerizations, like you win that game 10 times out of 10. So it's like, how do we mitigate? the 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 non-engine cards how do we get over their back row how do we play efficiently so uh, yeah i think we could definitely draw some um inspiration from this book and we're going to be going into a uh, episode by episode road of the king uh so darnell what do you think about this this idea i want to i want to let you speak i just wanted to explain that to the people no i mean to like distill that down a little bit if you're talking in terms of just like raw power of that archetype like taking away all the non-archetype uh, 
interruptions or anything like that, then yes, I agree with you. I think the Rock deck puts out a much higher output, a much stronger board, bigger monsters, can push through a lot more than what Elder could do. Like Elder would need a lot more time. Like it only has the one monster, obviously. And like I mentioned before, like without that one monster, the rest of the deck can't really do anything. So yeah, I I think looking at it through that scope, I think that makes a lot of sense. And it kind of puts into context why a lot of players like lean towards combo decks versus control decks, at least in the TCG. So yeah, I think that was a nice little insight for our listeners and audience. All right, awesome. Um, yeah, so guys, uh, let us know if you prefer, you know, to have to continue going over this book, Road of the King. Some people might find it boring. I think it's very insightful. Uh, it's always nice to have literature that comes from experts. I consider Patrick Holman an expert. He has thirty nine tops. I think that's you know that's legitimate. But um, yeah, it's like that doesn't include like regionals. Like that includes like premier events or regional top eights at least. So, um, but yeah, he's a very good player, very good friend of mine. Um, I've been smoked by him and Goat enough times to know that he's very good at the game. Uh, so yeah, he, he has a lot of good ideas and, um, hopefully that, hopefully have him on the show one of these days. So that's really all I have for that set, that segment of Road of the King. Um, Darnell, this was a pretty good episode. Is there anything else you wanted to conclude with? Um, no, I, I agree. I think this was pretty fun for me. I, I had a whole lot of fun. I hope the listeners had fun with this as well, too. Uh, I just want to say, you know, if you're new to us, be sure to check out Bomani Lounge on Facebook. Check out our Facebook group. Uh, check us out on Discord, uh, Instagram, YouTube, especially YouTube. We got some awesome content on there. We have online tournaments that we run on EDO Pro every Sunday and Wednesday where we give out prize cards. Um, things like Nintendos and playstations and xbox ones yeah you know just some high value electronics and yeah we're just an awesome community of just beautiful Yu-Gi-Oh players i love to just talk about the game talk meta talk shop help each other out go to events together compete together and yeah i think that might do it for me awesome all right guys well that's really all i have left to say it was a blast and uh signing off for my colleague darnell and myself henry i'll see you guys in the next episode of the shadow realm podcast see you guys next time bye guys